0: Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And health officials are on the verge of creating a long-term needle exchange program in Scott County to quell an HIV outbreak that's infected more than 150 people in the region. The number of new cases is starting to plateau, but doctors say more needs to be done. And today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk about those issues. We'll speak with health officials who've been working in Scott County. We'll also discuss the effectiveness of the needle exchange program and whether similar programs are could be used to prevent HIV outbreaks, excuse me, in other counties. We have uh, three guests today. Two are joining us uh, long distance. We have Beth Meyerson, co-director for the Rural Center for AIDS uh, STD Prevention, who's joining us from WFYI in Indianapolis.
0: Dr. Beth Meyerson.
1: Dr. Beth Meyerson and Dr. Jennifer Walfel is uh, also joining us, she's deputy, deputy. State Health Commissioner, and she is joining us by phone. And joining us in the studio today is Dr. Diane Janowitz, uh, Infectious Disease Specialist at Indiana University Health Physicians. If you want to join the program, you can give us a call at eight five five zero eight one one. That's 812 855 Eventually I'll get that uh, area code in there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. And you can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash NoonEdition. And you can follow us on Twitter at NoonEdition. So welcome to all of you. Thanks for thanks for being here with us today. Hi,
0: Bob. Welcome thank back. You for, hey, thanks. Thank, thank you for you. having us.
1: Uh-huh. So I thought we'd just start with uh, sort of a review of the history of this outbreak. And uh, I think we'll go to uh, Dr. Jennifer Walthall for that, the Deputy State Health Commissioner. So, uh, Dr. Walthall?
2: Absolutely. I can start with where we are uh, as of close of business uh, yesterday okay. we have a total of 160 uh, positive HIV tests in uh, Scott County and uh, are following up on contacts in five counties surrounding uh, the good news in that number is that it is again as you said before plateauing the other really good news is that uh, the new cases as of the last uh, two weeks are actually uh, within the same cohort that have already been tested. And what I mean by that is we are now in the process uh, three months in and going back and testing, retesting all of the individuals who tested negative at the beginning of the outbreak. And so the new positives uh, are in uh, folks who tested negative at the beginning. As you know, there is a a delay in some cases in uh, the rate of uh, positive tests um, from the initial uh, acquisition of the disease. And so we are going back and retesting negatives and have found a few positives in that original group. So the process is working. We don't have a new cohort of patients that we're looking at and so we feel like we are really uh, getting our our hands around uh, this uh, group of people uh, here specifically with this outbreak uh, moving forward. The other uh, pieces of the puzzle that are are challenging moving forward is that we have a positivity rate um, Uh, of co-infections with hepatitis C of 88%. Mm. So we're not just dealing with an HIV outbreak here. We are dealing with um, all of the... risks that come along with injection drug use and that's hepatitis C as well. We also have many of our HIV negative patients who are hepatitis C positive and so Mm -hmm. dealing with um, programs moving forward and building infrastructure that I'm sure we're going to talk about today will have to account for uh, not only those two (coughs) important diseases but also the underlying chronic disease and changing the conversation around risks and behaviors and support for those uh, dealing with addiction and mental health. Uh, so and less, drug less use.
0: punitive, and uh, I assume you mean less punitive and more preventive and, and uh, treatment centered.
2: Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, And great. that includes not only program building, but also just even the language and uh, the ways that, that communities uh, look at. Um, inclusiveness and support and connection. It's, this is not a this is not a conversation about an us versus them uh, phenomenon. This is a conversation about us, us as a community, uh, building and moving forward.
0: Right now, um, for those of us who aren't familiar with Scott County, what are some of the cities and towns or, or communities um, around that area? Uh, so there are
2: several towns within uh, Scott County where where much of the attention is focused currently is uh, in, in Austin and the neighboring city of Scottsburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the uh, two primary spots where uh, the heat maps that we've done looking at the location of, of tests have uh, have come positive. We, ha- we have other contacts that are have been traced um, outside of those two cities and outside of this particular county, but all of the cases that have been identified as positive uh, to date, have had a connection back to Scott County.
0: So, people who don't follow this on a regular basis might tend to think of uh, an outbreak like this being more likely to happen in a in a more urban area. But I don't think anybody would describe Count Scott County as as an urban area. So that's
2: correct. So it is, uh, it is designated as a as a rural um, area for for multiple reasons, and has uh, a lack of resources in in lots of ways. You know, when we look at Indiana historically, only about 3% of our uh, uh, citizens who uh, have HIV have acquired that through injection drug use, about 9% nationally, and so to have uh, an outbreak that is 95% related to injection drug use changes uh, the response and it changes uh, the conversation about uh, what needs to be done in this area. Specifically why this outbreak is is unique is for multiple factors. One, it's in a rural area. Two, it is tied to uh, the injection drug use of an oral opiate. And so those particular factors tied together uh, means that we have to change the way that we look at um, best practices for HIV. We're dealing with a, a different setting, uh, a, different set of, of risks that we normally look at, and that has been um, a process that we are we are pleased with uh, the preliminary results of that response, but want to do more not only to make sure that this and other rural areas are, are protected, but that our um, processes moving forward do upstream prevention so that we're, we're not chasing after HIV hepatitis C. And uh, substance use and addiction uh, in the future.
0: Sure. So, I guess uh, kind of an obvious question is why Scott Scott County?
2: There was really a, a constellation of factors that exist in in many areas of areas of rural America that that exist again in in Scott County, but are not a Scott County problem. It just happened to be that this is where uh, we found it first. And mm-hmm. uh, just begin, going back to even. Uh, the social determinants of health that exist in this area um, we have uh, folks that have a limited opportunity for um, for jobs for uh, economic development uh, moving in, in the rural area and and with that comes a, a sense of, of hopelessness which we've seen as we've talked to folks that are um, are in the throes of, of substance use and addiction. Uh, they talk about not having an idea about what they what they want to do, what they want to be, um, how they're going to move forward with their life, and and um, and moving into uh, addiction is a is a difficult and multifactorial approach. There haven't been uh, a lot of resources that are easy to connect to for addiction services, and when you have a reservoir of folks that are engaging in, in these um, high-risk activities, you're going to start to see the consequences uh, of that. And when and all it takes uh, is one HIV-infected uh, person to come into a needle-sharing um, community that uh, hepatitis C and HIV will, and, and other bacterial complications of injection drug use and needle sharing will uh, come to light.
1: So, okay. Beth Meyerson is the uh, co director for the Rural Center for AIDS and STD Prevention. So, Beth, would, was this a surprise to you? I mean, and I guess, did you see something like this coming?
3: Well, that's a really tough question. On the one hand, um, I don't think anyone would see it coming, but on the other hand, and I'm I'm sure Dr. Walskall and others in public health would say it's not a surprise um, because there are a variety of of things at play. Uh, Scott was uh, ranked 92 of counties in Indiana for health health outcomes and um, socioeconomics, other determinants of health. She'd mentioned, but um, really in terms of injection drug use challenges, hepatitis C rates are the most robust of indicators. And so what that really means is that it's not just Scott, it's it's several communities around Indiana who might be looking at their public health data and their situation and saying, gee, could we be next? Do Mm -hmm. we even know? Um, In all fairness to what's happening out there, you know, we don't have the kind of resources to screen widely you know when you think about what's available in uh... the southern indiana region you know in in the state of indiana we we invest a paltry thirteen dollars and eight cents per capita in public health state resources most of that goes to medicaid and while i'm happy about medicaid it just it's not enough for public health and so what that essentially translates to for HIV alone, and we're not talking about hepatitis C, we're not talking about substance abuse at all, that plus the federal dollar that comes into into Indiana means that we really only have 37 test sites throughout the state and, um, and that's a real problem. So when you think about communities like Scott where the health department didn't have its own test site because it frankly didn't have the epi there or epidemiology or the case need if you will, um, you can imagine that they would have no way of knowing, per se, mm-hmm. what was what was happening. Now, I will so say out of this. So 93 counties, we have yep. 30, 92. 90, uh, 92, that's right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I got
0: that. Yep. Yeah, 92 counties, we only have 37 places you can go. Is that that you can go for free to get tested or is it just across the board that you can go
3: to get tested? Well, so it's, the, it's an HIV-funded test site uh... that's that's essentially sponsored by the state department of health that doesn't mean that's their fault that we only have thirty seven it's it's that we should have a public health system that tests routinely you know it's it's been since two thousand six that the cdc has recommended that uh... we do routine hiv testing in the context of primary health care and our studies of community health centers across indiana indicate that while ninety percent of these centers said they did in fact test and there are Um, essentially 48 in the state of Indiana. None of them tested to standard of care. You had to be either symptomatic or you had to ask for the test which would be stigmatizing. So we also know um, really private physicians themselves don't routinely screen. So when you have an outbreak like what's happening in Scott, it shows the belly of the beast. It's Mm -hmm. not just about HIV, it's about our primary public health system Uh, not working well together and so in essence it means what what uh, dr. Walthall was talking about our next step beyond outbreak response is how do we build that community resiliency that public health infrastructure together and it's not just top-down it's all of us across multi sectors to make that happen but we will have to be different so you think about what's happening um, in Scott County right now that local health department really is functioning in ways it never functioned before and that's great they're engaging their own uh, policy partners in ways they hadn't engaged before are they ready now to take the lead to have a community health improvement plan to move things forward so it's not just about HIV it's about all sorts of population health preparedness, if you will. Mm
1: -hmm. So we have uh, Dr. Diane Janowitz in the studio with us and she is an infectious disease specialist at Indiana University University Health Physicians. So doctor, I mean you've heard uh, what Beth was just saying, Beth Meyerson was just saying about having a system set up and I I just want to get your reaction Mm -hmm. to that.
4: Certainly, well, so as she said, the CDC has recommended universal testing for all people anywhere from the age of 13 to 64. And ideally that's what we'd like to see um, implemented throughout all healthcare facilities um, from ERs to community health centers to private practice physicians. But that hasn't been taken up uh, very well uh, yet by many states um, and by many smaller rural counties um, and cities uh, such as we see in Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. That universal testing has been recommended because 16% of people who are infected with HIV here in the United States don't know it. Um, so by offering this universal testing, ideally we can capture more and more people who don't know they're HIV infected, and then subsequently link them to care, um, where they can see a physician and get effective treatment for their HIV.
1: Mm-hmm. So what's going to what, what what do you think needs to be done to move this forward? I mean, is is something is such a high profile? news story like what's happening in, in Scott County, is that going to be what it takes to get universal testing?
4: Well, I, I think this story can certainly help um, and be an impetus for many uh, different uh, cities and counties um, throughout the United States who take notice um, that uh, this can happen um, anywhere um, and, and that's one of the steps that we can use to uh, hopefully decrease the risk um, elsewhere um, to be able to capture those people
0: who don't know they're infected. So I assume part of the reason, too, that people that universal testing has not been initiated is the stigma that goes along with the HIV AIDS (laughs) virus and so I can see people potentially balking and no no I don't need that test I Mm -hmm. you know that's not possible that I Mm -hmm. would have that as a as a health issue so is it your thought and I would ask each of you this I think um, is it your thought then that we need to think in terms of a public health campaign that um, destigmatizes this and makes it um, less, or not onerous, but less um, I don't know, uh, out of the ordinary to get AIDS testing as a matter of course.
2: I would certainly, this is Jen Walthall back in Indianapolis, I would certainly point to some successes that we've had in the state of Indiana in the past, and specifically the one-test-two-lives campaign that allowed for universal testing of all pregnant women as an opt-out rather than an opt-in. The philosophical difference between those is having to go in as a pregnant woman and ask for an HIV test rather than it becoming the routine part of the care that's, that's part of uh, pregnancy evaluation. And that has gone extraordinarily well um, and probably needs to be revisited again to make sure that it can go outside of just um, the pregnant patient and really decreasing the stigma of having a test when you're thinking about not only your own life but the life of your uh, unborn child. I think that's a really uh, a model for us to look to as we develop larger public health campaigns and I think the stigma that you talk about is really appropriate here, not only for HIV but also for injection drug use as we really start to be inclusive, uh, not punitive, not separatist about these disease processes um, but I do think we have uh, something to look to as a positive example of how this has been done in a certain population.
1: I want to uh, give our listeners the phone numbers again so you can call in and join us on the program, uh, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us and reach us. At noon, edition on Twitter. Um, I wanted to go back uh, a little bit to you know this um, the the drug use. Um, you know the the use of opioids. I think is the the term that I, I keep hearing. And I guess I, you know that's sort of um, you know what what category of drug is that? Is are there common names for the opioids that that people are getting and then and then using in this way?
2: So this is uh, Dr. Walsh. Opiates are, uh, are narcotics, so they are used for uh, pain control, and generally for uh, acute pain is what we see them used for in the medical field, but there are certain formulations and types of uh, drugs in this category that can uh, have been used in the past to treat chronic pain. They are incredibly potent for the treatment of pain. Um, They're cousins to heroin that all comes from the same derivative. And the drug of choice in this particular outbreak in this community is uh, one of the oxymorphone drugs. The uh, trade name for that is Opana. And it has been uh, introduced in this uh, community as the previous uh, injection of an oral opiate was OxyContin, which you've probably heard Mm -hmm. uh, about in the past in the news that um, was reformulated in a drug-resistant formulation and became actually quite expensive um, to uh, purchase on the street. So it was replaced uh, over time with different types of medications. We've also seen in Indiana, as it has been a leader in uh, codifying, um, decreasing opiate prescriptions uh, by physicians and other prescribers, that uh, heroin use has also been on the rise, as other uh, oral opiates have become more difficult to uh, gain access to.
1: Okay. Well, I know that your colleague, Dr. Jerome Adams, the the uh, health commissioner, spoke at spoke to Congress um, yesterday. Spoke, yesterday, yeah, yesterday, and one of the the three. Um, major uh, thrusts he talked about in dealing with this problem was stopping the flow of, of opiates into into communities how, how do you do that yeah and how do you do that
2: there are multiple um, approaches to doing this uh, the attorney general's task force on prescription drug abuse has been a leader in this across the state and partnering with the indiana licensing board as well as physician groups um, advanced practitioner groups, dentists, anyone that has prescribing capabilities so that there are limits on the number of prescriptions and and the drug doses of prescriptions that can be administered by those that prescribe. This also, uh, the rule that went into effect in 2012, requires that you're actually seen by your prescriber. So we uh, it was found during the study that there were multiple prescribers that actually weren't even seeing patients, uh, and so that has been helpful. Additionally, really just education about what it means to prescribe an opiate and the correct settings for the treatment of acute and chronic pain and then alternate um, options for treatment of chronic pain in a multidisciplinary setting. Uh, Additionally, having drug treatment required of patients so that you can make sure that they're actually taking the medicine that you do prescribe them and rather than diverting it and selling it to other sources. Many of the prescribers are are not doing this intentionally. They're not prescribing opiates for the purpose of their patients going out and selling them. They're really doing what they think is the best thing to uh, treat pain, but the education that goes along with how to do this properly, having systems in place to make sure that prescribers uh, know how to prescribe correctly, and then uh, additionally doing the uh, due diligence on the side of of law enforcement and, and DEA to make sure that we don't have Uh, movement of of so-called pill mills uh, throughout the state that um, prescribe uh, opiates inappropriately. Mm-hmm.
3: And this so, is Beth. I would also add, at the population level, when we talk about building community resiliency and awareness about what's happening, so what was what's helpful is that we were talking about the law enforcement angle and, of course, the prescription-level behaviors, but um, it's important for communities to understand themselves what is out there, and, and the nice thing is we've got public health data, so average age-adjusted prescription drug overdose mortality rates uh, by county, and so in in our case, we now have 26 counties throughout the state that would be classified as having high rates of mortality uh, related to prescription drug overdose. And Scott's one of them, of course, but certainly not the only one. And it helps communities get their hands around this so that first responders, including law enforcement, aren't the only ones talking about this or families where there have been overdoses, but the communities can actually then engage, really, leaders within the community that may think they're not connected to this problem because perhaps stigma, et cetera, um, and it gives the community some power to act.
0: Can I go back to, to um, something that was said just a minute ago? Um, am I to understand that people who are prescribed legally, prescribed opiates, are asked or required to then have follow-up testing to prove that they are in fact themselves ingesting those opiates
2: we encourage all providers to uh, do routine drug screening on those that are prescribed opiates
0: so that's a yes that's a yes (laughs) okay all right so well uh, Okay, so so that that's kind of strange to me. It seems kind of like you're presumed guilty um, that that you have to go in and prove that you're taking your your meds. Um, I, I don't know that feels really invasive, but I but guess I think this-
3: wasn't it that uh, this is Beth? I think wasn't it yesterday at the hearing that we learned that seventy uh, percent of the overdoses or or, or um, issue with uh, prescription drug use came from family and friends that share their medications with with others. Mm. Yes. Yeah. That's
1: correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're uh, we're at break time now, so we're gonna we have a, a phone call, a f- caller who's waiting. We uh, have um, some other information that we're gonna pass along, but uh, you're listening to noon edition, and we're talking about the HIV outbreak in Scott County and the the greater implications of the, this issue. You're listening to noon edition. We'll be right back.
5: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We just had a very rapid 30 minutes <laughs> talking about, about this HIV issue uh, in Indiana, and uh, we have three uh, really fine, high-quality guests with us, as we always do. Dr. Diane Janowitz, who's an infectious disease specialist at Indiana University Health Physicians. Dr. Jennifer Walfel, Jennifer Walfel, who is the Deputy Health State Health Commissioner, and Dr. Beth Meyerson, who is the co-director for the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention, which is at the IU School of Public Health here in Bloomington. If you wanna call us and get on the program, 1-812-855-0811. 1-8, one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can, you can find us on Twitter at noon edition. We have Jack who's been waiting patiently on the line. Jack's from Bloomington, go ahead.
6: Uh, just a comment, it seems that if you want to avoid, want to destigmatize the problem, you probably shouldn't be talking about capturing the infected population.
1: That's just the thought. Okay. All right, Jack. D- yeah. uh,
0: did you mean like capturing data? Is that what you were referring to? Or,
1: oh, Jack's gone. Jack's gone. But- yeah, I think that's. I
2: you know it's interesting. This is uh, this is Jen Walpole. Uh-huh, sure. uh, I think we find ourselves uh, even even here at ISDH and uh, in working with infectious disease and working with public health that the the number of things that we need to change in the conversation is is so vast that mm. even the the well-meaning phrases that we put out there um, we we really have to think through the implications of those. Uh, when we talk about solutions and I've been um, personally guilty of that Uh, and I again changing that vocabulary I think it's a great point that Jack the caller makes when we talk about um, being clean that implies that if there's recidivism or ongoing drug use that you're somehow dirty. I mean Mm -hmm. just that level of detail is really important in the conversation and I think we have to sort of put our pride away and be um, thoughtful, even as a, you know, an educated population, about what, what do we have to change here, and as we're, as we're sending a message, making sure that we're communicating with everyone about those sorts of just even to the level of our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Jack, for making that point. It's been really valuable uh, to me personally and to our team and to our partners to have that sort of feedback in a, an open dialogue moving forward,
3: so mm-hmm. thank you. And this extends to how we claim our own community, which is um, versus those people who are over there who are addicted, versus our neighbors who are struggling with addiction. And and this gets to helping our, our um, primary and pre- preventive health colleagues in the systems, in our communities, figure out how they can embrace simple things like screening for substance abuse issues, screening for HIV, hepatitis C, those things that raise what we would call moral policy problems, and yet there are patients, our neighbors, our daughters, our sons, our friends, us, and that will help reframe the debate to we have a problem in part of our community versus our community needs to be different to serve everyone.
1: Mm -hmm. Dr. Janowitz, do you run into the same kinds of things, you know, as a specialist in infectious disease um, you know this the stigma and the language issues
4: oh absolutely you yeah. know un- unfortunately even um, in my patients who are HIV infected um, some of them are fearful to tell their own family members mm-hmm. uh, because of the reactions that they may um, receive from from their loved ones and the, the people with whom they live so that stigma and it, it, it pervades all levels, um, mm-hmm. from the, the patient and their family um, to those who are at the periphery um, mm-hmm. uh, of any sort of infection like this.
1: Well, I'm, I wonder about just the overall impact on Scott County now, as a, even though I think we, we've somewhat established that Scott County, just, it just happened there. It could be I mean, any, it could yeah, it could be any,
3: any county. <laughs> any
1: county. So Beth, could you address that?
3: Right. I think that it can be any county, and this is where we really need to help communities build resiliency. Um, You know, this, as I say, the outbreak teaches us about the belly of the beast, which is the system issue, but it calls us all to be different, not just Scott County, but, uh, you know, I teach in a school of public health, and I'm a public health researcher. How does IU School of Public Health in Bloomington need to be different to help communities at local level uh, have the workforce that's trained and knows how to gather communities to address these hard issues? How does our business school engage with the employers that are listed on the website in Scott County and Austin, right, to embrace mm-hmm. communities? How do we normalize public health issues so that we're building communities that are healthy, not just avoiding sickness? And, and this is where I think our challenges will lie.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, each of you, do you spend time out in the field uh, doing research research, or how, I'm just interested in the work that you actually do. Would, would, would you mind starting, Diane? Well, so
4: specifically uh, with respect to, to Austin, I, I'm there every week um, uh, staffing the HIV clinic, um, actually getting it up off the ground and running, uh, so seeing patients. Um, educating them about uh, their infection that they have now, um, the uh, the fantastic outcomes that they can have and the long life that they can lead um, when they're adherent to the medications that we prescribe them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And and could you talk about the the outcomes again? I think mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of still a lot of fear about HIV. Uh,
4: there is uh, so, you know, at the beginning of the the very beginning of the HIV epidemic, uh, back in the 80s and early early 90s, when you received the diagnosis of you have HIV, uh, you likely had a year or two to live. Um, but now we have ne- very very effective medic- medications. Uh, we always use a combination of antiretroviral medicines or, or HIV drugs to treat each person who's infected. And and rather than the cocktail uh, that. Uh, used to be used where you would often take 10, 20, 30 pills a day, some with food, some without, some with a liter of water, others without. Today we have very effective regimens, some of which are only one pill once a day with so few side effects uh, that patients tolerate them incredibly well. Mm Um, okay. And with that medication, they can live a, a life that's nearly as long, if not as long, as someone who is not HIV infected.
0: Okay. Dr. Meyerson, has this
3: called you up to the field as well? So my work is in public health systems and policy. And so much of my effort in this particular outbreak has been to translate research for policymakers. So that's been my work with the legislature, is to bring the public health corpus um, in, a, in a way that's digestible to my mother, for example, and, and that we can move a policy argument forward. And that doesn't just involve needle exchange. It has involved calling our legislature to double their paltry investment in public health and to think about the systems that they believe are there but really we learn are not there when we have a situation like this. My, my work really focuses on the opportunity for system change. You know, mm-hmm. How do we teach systems to ride a different bike to expand expand access to sexual health services. So I work in cervical cancer and I also work in HIV and have really since the beginning. Um, But our work really in this outbreak has been taking that part of the community effort to move the policy conversation forward as well as media advocacy. You know, our state Fights the good fight. Our state, our colleagues at the State Department of Health, has done a have done a fabulous job responding to this. Our colleagues at IU Health in infectious disease, but they are doing so with two hands tied behind their back because we have two pennies to rub together. Really, since no one thinks that public health needs anything, and so that's been my role here. It hasn't been research oriented at all. However, this summer we will be doing community institutional reviews around the Scott County area so that we can understand the need for community resiliency. Um, I study, for example, policy behaviors of local health departments. I do so across the country, but I also know what's happening here. We study intensively in Indiana for accreditation preparation and progress. As I mentioned, a study early of ours of um, community health center HIV testing. In 2011, we done a secret shopper study of the funded HIV testing clinics, and here we learned that it was broken and that only one in five people were able to, uh, or actually one in five people were not able to get a test when they sought one. That was a 20% failure rate. So a lot of our work is, is this. But in an outbreak setting where it's a circus down there, as I'm sure both Jen and Diane would say, you know, the last thing Scott needs is a bunch of researchers poking around.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like a lot of your field work is is actually uh, lobbying
3: and informing I wouldn't call it lobbying. Our president would not be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's inform, educating. educating. It is informing. It's bringing there research. Well, it's actually research. It's actually research bringing mm. research to the to inform policy deliberation.
1: All right. We have a phone call. We're going to go to Dave from Brown County. Dave.
3: Yes, am I there?
1: Yes, you are.
6: Well, uh, ironically, my daughter died of a heroin overdose eight years
3: ago today.
0: I'm sorry. I'm
2: sorry to hear that. Thank,
6: Thank
3: you. But the reason I'm calling is because I now know more about heroin than I ever wanted to, and I've come to a couple of conclusions, and I would love to hear you discuss this, these ideas.
6: Uh, first, that the so-called war on drugs is a complete and
3: total failure, and in fact, drug use has increased, not decreased. And the second, if you are addicted to drugs, you are sick. You are not a criminal. Something has changed
1: in your life, and it's no longer involving free will and choice, which I think is an element in any criminal activity. So I would I would love to hear your perspective on those two thoughts. So All right. So first... Yeah, this, yeah go ahead.
2: This is uh, Jen Wolfell. Uh, thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. It is um, It's very timely that you bring those up. We were... Just in Washington, D.C., as an executive team from ISDH yesterday, and and spoke uh, with multiple uh, organizations and and folks within the federal government about just this topic about again reframing um, addiction as a as a chronic disease in order to move forward um, with. Rebuilding lives and restoration of um, pr- being a productive member of society, and without the tools to do that in the healthcare setting, we've, the conversation has changed to uh, the tools that are available in uh, the judici judiciary and law enforcement system, and we need to change uh, that conversation back toward health, so that we are returning um, folks that suffer with this chronic disease to the life that they that they need, and the. The peeling of the onion in this really complex um, process is an important onion to peel. We've made some really wonderful progress in the state of Indiana just in the last six weeks with the signing of the community bystander naloxone law that allows for family members, loved ones, and friends to uh, receive a prescription for life saving naloxone in the setting of overdose so that um, those. Uh, victims of of overdose are able to connect with the healthcare setting and really have a second chance um, at receiving the kind of treatment that they need. The infrastructure to give that treatment needs to be built as well.
0: Is that Narcan? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. I wasn't familiar with the other name. I I know it by Narcan. Thank you.
2: Yeah. So we are are thrilled with um, that additional tool in our arsenal for um, combating our overdose deaths. Um, making that, uh, abil- that tool systematized and programmatic and easy so that we can do training for uh, first responders, for community members, and that part of that package includes give the medicine, call 911, get patients to the hospital, uh, adding to that a robust uh, Good Samaritan Law, so that you know if other folks are uh, engaged in drug use that are and are afraid to call because they're afraid that there will be uh, ramifications for that there we have m- much work to do surrounding just the the acute setting of mm. of overdose, but then the the background behind that is building then the system so that when you do uh, have this moment of opportunity and a, a teachable moment and a second chance that those systems exist for treatment and then um, safety net for um, recidivism that happens over time, but I think that that one particular um, powerful tool we now um, have the opportunity to really uh, capitalize on in the state of Indiana.
1: Uh, Jen, it sounds like uh, you have a model for that bystander law with the, with the uh, uh, you know, the the law with with alcohol. The I'm losing the name of it.
0: Yeah, I, I know. Life the Lifeline yeah, life sure. yeah.
1: Law. Sorry. The life we've done two shows on it, so the Lifeline Law. Yeah. yeah, so it sounds very yeah. similar to that.
2: It is very similar to that, and the idea would be that um, there's a protection involved for really promotion of health, um, and we need to have partnership between law enforcement and public health and the medical community, and we've really seen that work in Scott County, law enforcement has been uh, a primary supporter and a primary partner in this response. It would have failed without them. They're great people and really are, are learning the language of, of public health and how it intersects. In fact, we have HIV testing going on in uh, the jail system um, in addition to what's already been happening for years in the Department of Corrections system. And so we're pleased to have these conversations starting and then true um, visible outcomes of what we've learned and how we can move forward.
3: There's a good example, too, in uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, that was published in The Atlantic earlier this month. And and actually, it was in response to what was happening in Indiana, where they are um, using, of course, several elements that we're talking about right now. But also, um, as people might enter a police station with the remainder of their drug equipment, um, they won't be charged. But they're going to be essentially assigned what they're calling an angel, who will be their guide through a process of addiction Uh, detox and recovery, and essentially just turning what Jen was saying, turning this um, criminal model into a public health model. But this will take, you know, important cultural change for all of us because in fairness to our colleagues in law enforcement, you know, they're trained because of what they see. And so we'll want to be working as a community to come around all of us in public health and law enforcement, et cetera, to make that shift possible.
1: All right, if you have a question or a comment about this issue, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So I wanted to just ask about the needle exchange uh, program and get uh, some kind of description of, of how that works.
2: The needle exchange program specifically in Scott County um, is yeah. what, uh, we ha- what we're we working with right now. It was approved uh, two months ago under an emergency order that was executed by Governor Pence that suspended the legislation at the time where needle exchange was not uh, approved. And the model that they put together with the assistance of uh, technical assistance and resources from ISDH, uh, community partners, the CDC that was uh, with us, was a model that, that worked uh, very well in this rural community. And that uh, allowed for um, an immunity uh, process of coming into the local health department's uh, site, bringing in used needles, and then getting a new supply of needles based on the amount that was needed, the, the idea being clean needle every injection every time. Uh, one sharing or one use of a, a preused needle puts you at risk, especially mm-hmm. in a community where the viral load of HIV is very high and very infective. We want to make sure that we're protecting people with this uh, powerful tool. Um, What we found was what we expected is that there would be a a slow adoption at the beginning as the community sort of wrapped their brain around what this looked like. There were, as you can imagine, some trust issues about, you know, what are they going to do with me when I come in uh, to get my clean needles. But as the word of mouth spread that these are people in the health department who really have my, my best interest in mind, they're not out to get me, they're here to help me, it was embedded within lots of other services. So not only were you coming in for the needle exchange itself, but the counselors for Lifespring to talk about, uh, are you interested in um, an inpatient detox program or outpatient support or other things? All of those uh, um, services were embedded together within the needle exchange. In this particular model, it was in the same building as the ISDH one-stop shop, which had many other services in place, immunizations, the ability to sign up for health insurance, the Department of Workforce Development to talk about job training, HIV testing, just a, a, a huge array of services all co-located in one space so that needle exchange was part of the conversation but not the only part. And what we've seen over time is a, an adoption of the model that's been extraordinary. About halfway through the uh, two-month period under the uh, executive order, uh, the Scott County Health Department also instituted a mobile unit where, and and we find this is true in many models, that going to the patient or uh, to uh, folks where they are rather than making them come to you is really, really Mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. And that mobile unit has been wildly successful in the exchange of syringes. And as of yesterday, uh, our health commissioner, Dr. Adams, uh, signed into effect a one-year ongoing needle exchange practice uh, within Scott County under the new needle exchange law that was signed by Governor Pence just a few weeks ago. So they will have this tool available for uh, yet another year with the opportunity for um, looking for that to be renewed uh, over time. And their model that they'll do for this um, uh, program moving forward will be entirely mobile. And we're very excited to uh, see them continue this great
3: work. And the nice thing about it is that um, they now have a local colleague county, any county now under the law that was passed this year and signed by the governor in early May can uh, move, take steps toward Um, initiating application for a syringe exchange in their own community and this will require community-based conversation, it will require conversation at the County Commission and Council level or City Council level depending upon the size of their jurisdiction, and then a process that will allow a year approval, if you will. So what's nice about what Dr. Adams had just approved is that now that's not every 30 days and it allows the community to breathe a mm-hmm. little bit, continue to develop that trust, but the good news is Scott now has experience and so there's local experience in a local Indiana community about how this went and I think that goes miles ahead for credibility with other communities that might be interested in raising their hands and and we already know at RCAP there are a few counties that are already thinking about raising their hands and going through the process, and we'll be watching carefully to know what is needed to help them think that through. So local health departments, for example, we might have local health directors that want to have a community discussion about the public health data. Maybe they never have done such a thing. Can they do that? Can they manage a community debate? Have they been able to do that at their county council level? Do they have the political skills and policy communication skills to do that? Um, Are the councils open to this or not open to this? How do they manage this? So it, it The nice thing about the way the law was constructed is it allows the community to own this option so that users ultimately, you don't want to railroad a community. you don't want to railroad a, a syringe exchange through a community because it's dangerous for the users. So this way the community can own it, come to their own decisions about it. and then by the time the State Department of Health has a request, um, it's it's really supported in ways that it might not be before.
1: All right. We have a phone call from Jane from Bloomington. Jane, go ahead.
6: Oh, hi there. Thank hi. you for this interesting discussion. Uh, I just want to comment anecdotally. I'm thinking a friend of mine who has had an heroin addiction used to live in Bloomington. Now is living in Shelbyville because that's where she can get shelter. And um, according to what I understand, she's had to travel to Indianapolis. To get her um, methadone, and has also had to pay each time up to like two hundred dollars, or there's some sort of cost to it. You know, I'm fuzzy on the details because I'm not a case manager or caseworker. I just listened to her. She's also had trouble holding a job, and I'm just wanted to mention. Now, I don't think she has um, HIV. I hope not. Um, but how important adequate treatment and affordable and accessible treatment is across the board. The other comment I want to make is about um, just the general market for drugs. We've invested so much in the idea of trying to fortify the border. Um, the, the, the drugs that flow in from other places flow in because of the market. And so wouldn't it be great for our, for our governor, our legislature to invest in the people here? who have problems and thereby diminish the market that exists. It will be just one state, but even one state can make a difference.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, thank you, Jane. Any uh, comments, reaction to Jane?
0: You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there have been lots, this is Mary Catherine. I'm sure there have been lots of studies done that uh, also would prove that it's uh, more cost-effective to treat someone um, than it is to incarcerate them. Is that something that you're Uh, also trying to promote?
2: Well, when we have the conversation about um, substance use treatment, an inherent component of that is medication-assisted therapy. And there are lots of options to that that are uh, different medications for different people. And having the specialty experience to know who will be best served with what and then having those resources available again thank you for those great comments both of those comments were really thoughtful we need to have treatment services available um, that meet the patients at their need Uh, we heard from a gentleman at testimony in in dc yesterday from missouri that they only contract with programs that have behavioral health programs that have a medication assisted therapy component so that everyone is getting access to the full spectrum of services that they need they can have intentional or um, intensive behavioral therapy Uh, Medication assisted therapy if they need it uh, for. Really, the, with the purpose of returning to productivity. So, the, the data is robust that medication assisted therapy returns people to jobs, allows them to reassimilate into their families, have that normalcy of day to day existence um, with a decrease uh, in recidivism over time. So, again, we have to shore those up, and we have wonderful partners um, here in the state of Indiana that are working uh, with us across the board. To shore up those resources uh, in places that need them, and those include rural communities.
1: All right, we have a, uh, less than two minutes to go, so uh, I guess I want to get all three of your thoughts about, you know, the best way to move forward on this issue of, uh, on these issues, you know, involved with these public health uh, public health outbreak on this, and set it in the context of, you know, we we are talking a lot today about about this being patient centered, and I think that's a really really important part but there still is the law enforcement aspect of it where a lot of laws get violated, laws, laws get broken. How do you come to, you know, what, what, what do we need to do to move forward to make all this um, more, I guess, health directed?
2: It's interesting as my, my other hat is I'm an emergency physician and I talk about the emergency department needing to be part of the continuum of healthcare and I think as we move this conversation forward we need to make sure that our law enforcement is part of the continuum of public health so that it's not an interruption, uh, it's not the primary answer but is a partner in the conversation moving forward so that all of, all of the solutions are, are innovative involve law enforcement and you know, keep communities safe, which is our, our primary focus, mm-hmm. but also uh, focus on uh, treatment of chronic disease in the appropriate setting.
1: Okay. Diane, very quickly.
4: Well, I, I think we have a lot to learn uh, from this, and, and we can take the lessons uh, learned about um, how HIV outbreaks occur so quickly, and perhaps mm. use some of those lessons to prevent um, future outbreaks with universal testing and recognizing risk behaviors in communities and adopting uh, policies
3: and, and testing for specific communities in their uniqueness.
1: All right. And Beth, I've left you about 15 seconds.
3: And I would say, really, it's a question of public health, collective public health leadership across communities, across sectors, and, and we can rise to that in Indiana. We can do this.
1: All right. Well, thank you to Dr. Diane Janowitz, Dr. Jennifer Walfel, and Dr. Beth Meyerson. For Lacey Scarmana and Alexander McCall, our producers, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Mary Katherine Carmichael, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.